0: And yet there is hope, and there are points of light in the darkness.
1: Welcome to Tales with the Sales, where we discuss stories that matter because you are living one. I'm your host, Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. My guest today is Carolyn Clare Gibbons. She's a displaced northerner exploring the foreign ways of the South. She works in communications and the arts at New City Church in North Carolina and does freelance editing and writing as well. Carrie lives in Charlotte with her two literary cats Lord Peter Whimsey, and Harriet Vane. She has previously bumped around the world both as a missionary kid and adult. Carrie has been part of the publishing process on more than 30 books, including the first edition of her own middle grade chapter book, The King's Messenger. She's the author of Rose Fire, published by Bandersnatch Books in 2021. I'm so glad to have Carrie Givens with us here today and Carrie I know that you brought some exciting literature for us and I don't want to wait to hear it anymore so why don't you hop into that for us
0: I did I have uh Jane Eyre with me which is a novel that I grew up on um and I just want to read this is a spoiler for anybody who hasn't read it but it's a quote right from the end um It's Mr. Rochester, and he says, Jane, you think me, I dare say, an irreligious dog. But my heart swells with gratitude to the beneficent God of this earth just now. He sees not as man sees, but far clearer. Judges not as man judges, but far more wisely. I did wrong. I would have sullied my innocent flower, breathed guilt upon its purity. The omnipotent snatched it from me. I, in my stiff-necked rebellion, almost cursed the dispensation. Instead of bending to the decree, I defied it. Divine justice pursued its course. Disasters came thick on me. I was forced to pass through the valley of the shadow of death. His chastisements are mighty, and one smote me which has humbled me forever. You know I was proud of my strength. But what is it now when I must give it over to foreign guidance, as a child does its weakness? Of late, Jane, only only of late, I began to see and acknowledge the hand of God in my doom. I began to experience remorse, repentance, and the wish for reconcilement to my maker. I began sometimes to pray. Very brief prayers they were, but sincere. And it goes on from there, but that is Rochester's kind of final moment, and it's funny, like this is my favorite novel. And when I talk to people about it, especially in twenty twenty one and and the culture we live in today, there's a lot of complaining about Rochester as a hero because he is, as he says, an irreligious dog. <laughs> um he is not an ideal in any sense of the word throughout the novel. But what has always been so powerful to me in this story is his transition his repentance and his his growth. And yes, you only see it right at the very end of the novel. You see his you know confession basically at the end of the novel. So you don't get to see him live out the rest of his life. Um, but it's clearly there that this is a true change. His heart has been truly renewed. That was always, like I said, I grew up on this novel. I watched the the BBC ninth, early 80s mini series version of it uh, that has Timothy Dalton multiple times before I ever even picked up the book. And then I picked up the book and read it over and over and over again. I have, I think, five copies on my shelf. Um, <laughs> and that was just always such a powerful shift in, you know, in his character to me. And it was so moving and so clear that God's redemptive hand works in people's lives. What has struck me again as an adult is that's the really vivid repentance, you know, you have and I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian and and so many people that I know within the church like think about their testimony and their story of coming to know the Lord and for so many people who grew up in church who haven't really doubted who, you know, have had kind of just a steady walk of faith, there's a lot of, um, there can be a lot of guilt around the fact that they don't have a good repentance story. And, you know, they hear somebody else give their testimony and they they feel like, well, you know, mine's not a big deal. Um, and yet what has struck me as an adult is actually an earlier passage in uh, in Jane Eyre as well, when jane is madly in love with rochester and um she she is throughout the story the steady faithful one um and she she falls madly in love with rochester and she gets they get engaged um and then the disasters eventually smote but prior to that there's this one little line that i just love and it's jane as the narrator and she says well, she's she's trying to to kind of hold Mister Rochester at a, at a bit of a distance throughout their engagement, trying to be proper, et cetera, et cetera. And she says, after all, my task was not an easy one. Often I would rather have pleased than teased him. My future husband was becoming to me my whole world and more than the world, almost my hope of heaven. He stood between me and every thought of religion as an eclipse intervenes between man and the broad sun. I could not. In those days, see God for his creature of whom I had made an idol. Ooh. And Jane's story is probably a lot more like mine. Like, it's not dramatic. It's, I mean, well, it is dramatic. It's a gothic novel. But in terms of her her story of repentance, it is not dramatic. Um, it is simply her leaning into what she knows is true and living by that and going on. But that little line hit me like a hammer when I first read that as a young, like as an adult, you know, I'd read it as a teenager many times, but rereading it as an adult. And I was like, that's for so many of us that, that faith is part of our lives and faith is, is, you know, just kind of a steady thing. We still can lose sight of the ultimate of pursuing God when we put his creatures in front of him and we make of them idols or his creation or whatever, his gifts, whatever those things are. Um, And that just, I think her story is so much more subdued than Rochester's that you almost miss it um, because his is the dramatic one. And yet hers is no less powerful. It's no less a a story of redemption um, where she comes to realize that this man in front of her cannot be her idol. And I just I love that picture. Um, Charlotte Bronte was the daughter of a minister. So she, you know, she knew the world of faith. um, And I love that she gave us these two different takes on a life of faith. And and then The third picture, I think, is the picture of Sinjin Rivers. Um, And so when Jane is at her lowest, um, she is rescued by Sinjin and his sisters. And Sinjin is a pompous ass. Um, (laughs) And he is so pious and overtly pious. And he's obnoxious. Like The whole time he's in the book, you just want to throw the book aside and just get rid of him. And he is convinced that he knows God's plan for Jane she doesn't feel the calling that he thinks is is God's plan for her and so she stands firm again she's the steady one you know she's like no the lord hasn't called me to that i will you know and he wants to marry her and take her to india and she's like i'll go to india i will be a missionary um but i'm not going to marry you but <laughs> and, and there's this whole you know back and forth and she winds up he he winds up giving up and he goes to india and she winds up going back to rochester but I realized the last time that I read through this, that the last lines of the book are actually about John. It's, you know, years ahead of that moment with Rochester. She sort of gives like a recap of dear reader, you know, uh, reader, I married him is the classic moment of the sort of epilogue. But the last paragraph is about Sinjin. And she says, Sinjin is unmarried. He will never marry now. Himself has hitherto sufficed to the toil, and the toil draws near its close. His glorious sun hastens to its setting. The last letter I received from him drew from my eyes human tears, yet filled my heart with divine joy. He anticipated his sure reward, his incorruptible crown. I know that a stranger's hand will write to me next to say that the good and faithful servant has been called at length into the joy of his Lord. And why weep for this? For, for ah. No fear of death will darken St. John's last hour. His mind will be unclouded. His heart will be undaunted. His hope will be sure. His faith steadfast. His own words are a pledge of this. My master, he says, has forewarned me. Daily, he announces more distinctly. Surely I come quickly. And hourly, I eagerly respond. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And when I read that the last time, it, I was like, here's this character that the whole time you've been just hating. Like he's obnoxious. He is overly pious. He, he is the worst of the obnoxious kind of Christian who thinks he knows God's plan for everybody's life. And yet he gets that final word. And that is such a beautiful, I mean, it's such an echo of revelation. It's an echo of Jesus's parables and saying, well done, good and faithful servant and all of those things. And he, even the most obnoxious Christians among us, <laughs> if they are of true faith, the Lord is, is, their, is their friend and is their guide. And I just, I love all of those pictures of the different kinds of faith in the midst of a Excellent novel. Like the book is not about faith. <laughs> the book is a is a is a gothic romance, um, and I just love those images um, throughout it, and those three pictures of characters.
1: I've been sitting listening to you read this, and it's been a few years since I've read Jane Eyre. I remember really enjoying it, but I definitely cannot remember every single book I've read, and I've only read Jane Eyre once. Okay, in, in my defense, um, <laughs> that's fair. Well, because I've read, like, Sense and Sensibility a zillion times. so right. right. Um, but the thing one. that struck me about the second quote that you read that was talking about idolizing her human love. Yeah. It, the first thing that happened is it reminded me of a book I read by Fulton Sheen called Three to Get Married. Okay, and I don't know that he, one. Yeah, it's a Catholic book. I'm mm-hmm. Catholic, hi. Um, <laughs> but... But the thing that I remember so distinctly of reading that book when I was engaged was it talked about that so long as married couples look at each other mm-hmm. only, mm-hmm. they're that eventually they will idolize one another, and then they will worship one another, and then they will realize that that human love is fallible, and mm-hmm. they will be angry mm-hmm. because then they're God, quote unquote, has failed them. Mm-hmm. And so they get mad at the partner for not being perfect. Mm-hmm. And he said, so couples always need to be pointed at Christ rather mm-hmm. than pointed at one another. And that's, that's the first thing that came to my mind when you read that. And the second thing that came to my mind about it is I almost caught a double meaning in what she was talking about, that she looked at her fiance as if he would be her salvation. -hmm. Of course he's not her savior. Right. But the the crosses that she bore Mm -hmm. in relationship to this man was part of working out her salvation. And and so it's so I saw the this double meaning there. And it's and and that human relationships are always hard. They are always Mm -hmm. hard. And um, when you talk about Christians who've always walked in their faith and stuff, and they're like, well, why don't I have this great conversion story? And it's like, oh, God's not done with you yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here's the thing is, it, it, it might never be this radical thing. It might never right. be an Augustine moment or a Paul moment or anything mm-hmm. like that. But like the first quote said, his plans are so far above our plans. Yes yes, and there's and and that uh, the other thing that it just reminds me of right now is being present where you are, mhm, that where are you right now with Christ, and that yes, you can talk about what he's done in in the past and what you hope he does in the future, obviously, but what is he doing right now,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And I think even in my own life that that's a real common thing to lose sight of.
0: Mm -hmm. So can I bring in a second book and, you know,
1: I want to ask you before before we move on to a second book, I want to know where you were at in your life. I know you must have been young when Mm -hmm. you initially read Jane Eyre.
0: I honestly cannot remember the first time I read the book. Um, It was likely early middle school just based on my reading habits of life like i would guess that but because i grew up watching that mini series which is i mean it's like 6 hours long it is it is almost word for word the book because i grew up watching that it is so intertwined like i knew this story so well before i picked up the actual text so yeah i'm not 100% sure but i would guess it would have been 12 Twelve, maybe thirteen, um, that I first picked up the book and read it, and then continued to read it over and over and over again.
1: <laughs> so it's pretty much been a lifelong influence for you.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, yeah.
1: Wow. Yeah. yeah. So what else did you want to share with yeah, us? Yeah.
0: Well, you were just saying, you know, the the where are you now, and what are you doing now, and where does God have you, and what that brought to mind is the very final page of um, Middlemarch by George Eliot, which is another novel that I love. Um, That's one that I actually didn't read until grad school. And then I had to do a presentation on it. And I had a week to read it. And it is a 400 plus page (laughs) British novel. (laughs) and So I took it to a park and I sat down and I read more than half of it in a day um, and read the rest of it over the next day and um, was just completely taken in. It's such a good story. There's multiple major characters and you follow their, their tracks. One of the characters is Dorothea. She is this idealistic, she's going to save the world and she's going to do it by, by bringing, you know, bringing good to people uh, in the name of Christ. Like she's she's gonna do that. And so she pursues that goal to the extent that she marries a minister because that's what, you know, she's going she's, she doesn't love him, but you know, he's he's going to be useful in terms of, you know, how she um can she will work alongside him and, and they will bring good together is, is kind of her mentality. Um he's awful, and and she winds up actually he's also twice her age, if not more and uh, as he is failing in health, she actually falls in love with his nephew. her husband, when he dies she doesn't she doesn't do anything with his nephew, you know she's not inappropriate in any way, but her husband realizes this, and when he dies, he leaves his estate to her he's also wealthy and, and a landowner leaves this estate to her with the uh caveat that she will lose the inheritance if she marries the nephew and so she then is left with this tension throughout the story of i can do so much good with these material things that i have with this estate and yet here's a man i love over the course of the story like she just has to wrestle with that and um I'm trying to think if I need to give the resolution to that in order to understand this. I don't think I do. So I'm going to, I haven't read it. So please, I'm going to hold the, the very last word about Dorothea um, says the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might've been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs.
1: I love that. It's so good.
0: I love that. It's so good. I mean, and it goes hand in hand with, uh, there's a verse from Thessalonians, I think, about, you know, live quietly, work with your hands. Um, and it, it goes hand in hand with that, that that's that is what God calls us to. He calls us to steady faithfulness. These stories that, you know, have shaped me are, you know, they're fiction stories, but going hand in hand with what I've learned through the Bible and through church and through, you know, my family's faith, like, they are examples to me, some, you know, in some ways, the same way my grandmother was, like, you know, it's it's that, like, these are all people that I look up to.
1: That's one of the reasons I came up with the um, kind of catchphrase, read stories that matter because you are a living one. Because... Mm-hmm. You know, these relationship with these characters, I came up with this, I've been having a struggle with social media and the idea of it later. I'm a very relationship oriented person. And the thing I realized is social media is kind of fictional relationships with real people. Mm -hmm. Reading Mm -hmm. fiction is real relationships with fictional people. I like that. I like that there's just such a world out there and we can encounter people that we would never meet in real life. Mm-hmm. And we can see people almost as they are and that we get to see their thoughts and their motivations. And I think that's one thing that, you know, we're afraid to make ourselves vulnerable in life. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people don't necessarily understand our internal motivations and the choices that we make. And right. so it it leads to less empathy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you get to a fictional character. Often you see their motivations or you see the movements in the interior life, like Rochester saying that he finally turned to prayer. Mm -hmm. That if this were someone you knew in real life, you would have never been privy to this conversation. Right, right. And you would have continued to think him a butt and and your life would have not been edified by your experience with him, but in being fictional-
0: you get to listen in. Mm-hmm. 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 It, it, it's funny. I, I remember one of my writing professors talking about the difference between direct dialogue, writing in quotation marks, and indirect dialogue, which is just explaining what somebody said. He said, you know, writing in quotation marks, you, direct dialogue, you are inviting the reader to listen to the conversation. They're going to lean in and actually hear what these characters are saying to one another whereas indirect dialogue they're just observing kind of what happened and it's good to use both you know if you if you are a writer like you're 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 switching it up so it's not boring but i that has always stuck with me and and i think that's one of the reasons why i really enjoy writing dialogue is that like you're just inviting the the reader to just lean in and really engage and listen to what these people are saying. Um, And then when you have a first person narrator, even better, you get to get inside their
1: head. Well, and the thing that always throws me is, and I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but when you learn about unreliable narrators.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, there's a great one. Go ahead, finish what you're saying. And I've got a good example.
1: Oh, I'm excited. I'm excited. But you know, for, for the listeners who aren't familiar, an unreliable narrator is someone who everything that they're saying is the truth in their mind, but it's not reality. Mm-hmm. And that data, quote unquote, can't actually be trusted. Right. So go ahead and give me your example.
0: Yeah. So it's a book called Codename Verity by um, Elizabeth Veen. And it's a World War II based, to an extent, based on the kinds of women who actually did work in world war ii there were some that were spies there were some that were um uh, pilots and and so she it's there's two characters that you track and and you track their friendship leading up like you get their story leading up to the events of the book so there's just two girls and or young women and one of them is a spy and one of them is a pilot and the place where where she the author departs from reality as the pilot winds up flying to France, which women never flew across the channel. They only flew within England.
1: <laughs> That's actually not true. Oh, okay. That I don't know. I don't know if they flew to. Uh, well, no, let me take that back. I, I think you're right that they didn't fly from Britain to the continent. But the what were they the waves Yes. were ferry pilots from the United States to England.
0: <laughs> they, they crossed an ocean, just not a channel, right? <laughs> yes, there we go. They didn't go to the war theater. Um, but that's so that's the place. And she, she says, I think I gave enough reasons in my fictional story why this situation, you know, could be a realistic situation that it works. But anyway, but the first half of the book is told from the perspective of, and I'm blank, Julie, um, who is the one who is a spy. And then the second half of the book is told from the perspective of the other girl, whose name I have completely forgotten at the moment. And you find out her, like, what she knows about what Julie is saying. And so you've just been told this entire story from Julie's perspective, and you believe it. And then in the second half of the book, you begin to find out layers and nuances that you had no idea in the first half. And it's just brilliant how she takes this concept of an unreliable narrator and turns it on its head and says, like, okay, well I'm gonna I'm gonna show you what's unreliable here. Um oh, it's such a good book. It's one of my favorites.
1: Oh, and I love women in World War Two. But my um <laughs> I'm I'm a veteran. I'm a fourth generation mm-hmm. veteran third mm-hmm. generation of veter- of woman veteran in my family. Okay. And so my grandmother was actually a whack during World War II. Oh,
0: cool. Wow.
1: And so, um, yeah, I, I yeah. always find that interesting. And she didn't go to the European theater. She was just stateside. But still, right. that experience and mm-hmm. the storytelling of the role of women, mm-hmm. even in quote-unquote combat, is right. always... So fascinating, because even like, you know, the Rosie the Riveter stories and and things right. like that, that global events don't exist in this vacuum that's just mm-hmm. over there, you know, the, mm-hmm. the the geopolitical and the, you know, that affects faith, it affects economics, it right. affects social constructs. I mean, right. I, I could yeah. go on and on. Yeah, I love but it. But I, I love, I don't love World War II, but I no, love um, exactly. storytelling. Yes, related to World War II, yes. and I think a big part of that is being a veteran.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although I would also say, like, that's like all of my historical fiction love—not all, but must much of my historical fiction um enjoyment is stories that surround wars, and it's like war is terrible, but it does make for really good storytelling. <laughs> you know that that is an interesting dynamic that you're like, I don't want to glorify this, and yet. If you need some a setting with some drama, um, here's some available to you.
1: Well, and it can bring out the highs and lows of humanity. Yes. And it makes you wrestle with these ideas. One of my favorite books of all time, it's like over a thousand pages. And it's this saga written by um, an Italian man named Eugenio Corti. And the book is called The Red Horse. Okay. And Eugenio is... A, an Italian veteran of the Second mm-hmm. World War. Mm-hmm. And being Americans, I mean, we hear the Allies narrative. We hear a, a very um, Western European narrative. We hear a very British. Well, we don't even really hear a British narrative because how many of us know about the Battle of Singapore? I mean, right. seriously. right? Um, we don't get a um, ANZAC narrative mm-hmm. here in the United mm-hmm. States. We almost just get a U.S. narrative, which is still fascinating. But hearing... This man write this historical fiction tome, and he he was a veteran of the Russian front.
0: Oh, interesting! And
1: was in the Balkans, and these are all parts of that war that we mm-hmm. just we don't study at all, right? And the human experiences, and he had the power to humanize all of the parties involved. Hmm. That he he gets in the head of Russian soldiers that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Fought against him in the real world war. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, the, the, it. it's so amazing that war can be both so dehumanizing utterly. Yes. yes. And yet so humanizing. Yeah. And I loved that it was all this perspective of the person mm. bringing this global event down to a human level. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and really invest in, in, in investigating motivations and things. And it, and when you read stuff like that, it makes you think, well, what would I really do? Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. I faced that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: There's a an author that I love named Eric Newby. And he's primarily a travel writer. Um, he's British, he passed away within the last 15 years or so. But he wrote a memoir of being a soldier in world war 2 and he was british there was supposed to be an, before italy surrendered there was supposed to be a british invasion of italy and he was on a boat crew like he, he wasn't navy he was something else but basically like a marine landing kind of thing and so he was sent ahead this little crew was sent ahead and they were going to you know establish the footprint and then The army was going to come behind them. Well, the army wound up never coming behind them, but he got captured. And so he winds up in and so many um, so many of the prisoners of war in Italy were held in villas. And so he winds up in a villa with a bunch of other British officers in as a prisoner of war. When Italy surrendered, the Italian guards basically walked in and said, we're leaving. The Nazis are on their way, but we're leaving now and left. And so left these officers, you know, they could do what they wanted. And uh, so they decided to leave. Um, (laughs) Shocker.
1: But the villa. (laughs) Right.
0: (laughs) Exactly. But just a day or so earlier, Eric Newby had sprained his ankle. And he couldn't keep up as they were going across the countryside. And so he winds up telling them to go ahead without him. And he winds up getting taken care of by Italian people, just people in the country. They care for him. They hide him in the mountains for over a year. Um, and he's eventually recaptured again and eventually sent to a camp. And he made it through the war, clearly, if he only died 15 years ago. But um, <laughs> but one of the things that, that I love in it, because I would say, across, like generally, Eric Newby is a funny writer. Like most of his travel writing, it's interesting and fascinating, but it's very dry and, and humorous. And here's this very dramatic story that is his experience. But one of the things that hit me so hard the first time I read that was he talks about these Italian country people who take care of him, that until this moment, he thought of them as the enemy. You know, he thought of them as, you know, and he called them Italians and, you know, and he had had all of these derogatory terms that he used to talk about the Italian people. And here they just opened their arms and cared for him and protected him. And this shift that, you know, that he went through in realizing these these were people you know and and they were good people and kind people they were not mussolini um <laughs> and that it's just oh it's a it's a fascinating book and a really really great but again that humanizing of learning about who these people are so many of them are just the the waves of war and the winds of war take them and put them on one side or the other
1: well and the crazy thing about it is all these experiences we're talking about this humanizing actually occurs in suffering mm-hmm. and in desperation. Mm-hmm. That the bright sunny day when he's in the villa. Right. And he's quote unquote safe, even though he's a prisoner. Right. He can't see it. But in desperation, the scales fall from his eyes.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: I love stories that are about seeing people. Mm hmm. Mm hmm seeing through our prejudices, seeing through their facades, seeing through Mm. our own facades and witnessing their existence. Yeah. When you can realizing who created them and that they really are your brother and your sister, whether you like it or not. And (laughs) even if they act wickedly, right. That they're still your brother and sister. You just might not be happy about it.
0: Right. They are still made in the image of God.
1: Yes. And it's that, uh, and I can't quote it, but it's that thing from C.S. Lewis talking about you've never met an ordinary yes. person. Yes. And I can't quote it verbatim, but it's, I'll see if I can put it in the show notes because yeah. I think everyone should read what C.S. Lewis says about human dignity mm-hmm. and what we're capable of. Mm-hmm. I am having so much fun talking about literature. <laughs> But the thing is is you have some writing of your own. I do. I do. Um
0: and it ties I think in like we've talked about character-based stories and we've talked about stories with with suffering and with conflict and and the enemy uh not being an enemy and and that's that's so much of of what shaped Rosefire, which is my um my fiction novel. Um Technically, I think it would get categorized as young adult in that the main characters are in their late teens, early 20s. But as one of my friends said, if if young adult fantasy makes you think of uh, moody dragon vampires, um, this is not that book.
1: <laughs> no. no, it is not. Absolutely not. <laughs>
0: I liked I liked that description. I was like that is brilliant I love it I want to use it.
1: <laughs> no, that would be high fantasy. <laughs>
0: exactly. And,
1: and like I was actually talking with my husband about your book last night and I'm like so let me get this straight and my husband is 100% nerd and I uh-huh. adore him for it. Uh-huh. And I was like so let me get it straight. So high fantasy, dragons and elves. Low fantasy, magic but human race. And he's like, "Yes." I'm like, "Okay."
0: <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And I'd like to tell people, I'm like, Rosefire is a character-based story. Like, it is is in a world that is not my world, in that there is magic. But the driving forces of the storytelling are around the characters, not around the rules of the world. Um, And I think that that's, I mean, a really good high fantasy does that. But so much high fantasy... It's the rules of the world that are pushing the action of a story forward um, as much as the characters. And so I'm just not good enough to create a whole world that can push the... I mean, I struggle with plot anyway, so... (laughs)
1: You mean you don't want to write your equivalent of the Silmarillion plus plus <sighs> you plus? Know, Come on!
0: You know, I I had a good conversation with someone recently about it, and I was like, "I'll be the Lewis to your Tolkien, and tell you to quit planning and start writing."
1: <laughs> and- awesome, awesome, but. But I digress. Tell us where you were at in your life when you wrote Rosefire.
0: Yeah. So Rosefire, actually, I started writing it in 2000. Well, I got the idea for it in 2008. Um, So it's been a while because it didn't come out until this past year, 2021. I was in grad school and I was doing an English degree with an emphasis in writing and, and creative writing was in there. And so I was writing a lot of things and I was reading a lot of T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. I spent a good portion of the last 20 years reading T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, and it's one of my favorite uh, pieces of literature. In that season, I remember reading just a couplet in there that says, Ash on an old man's sleeve is all the ash the burnt roses leave. And I immediately had this image of an elderly monk shaking ash off of his sleeve after roses have been consumed by fire, which is another image that's throughout Four Quartets, is is roses and fire, and the flames and the roses are one. I had this image, and I was like, "Okay, who's he? <laughs> you know, who's who's this? Who's this monk?" Um, and that started me pretty quickly to Brother Ezra, who is um, one of the characters in in Rosefire, and he is an elderly monk. He has his own backstory, but he is a seeker of the rose, who is the hope of the kingdom of Asael. And then fairly rapidly after meeting brother Ezra, I got to know the rest of my main characters. Um, And Karen is the narrator, and she is the daughter of a nobleman of Asael and the nobles think of the ancient writings and the monks and the peasants and this promise of a hope for asael as bosh you know it's it's just the 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 foolish beliefs of pe- peasants and monks on her doorstep arrives anya who is has no memory of where she's come from and has prodigious skill in magic and magic is part of these ancient beliefs That starts Karen and her brother Richard and their friend Edmund on a journey of rediscovering the ancient writings and Anya as well, rediscovering the ancient writings and beginning to see that perhaps Asael needs to return to what the ancient writings say it was built on um, in order to... Get through the crisis that it currently is in. The king is dying; his heir to the throne dies, and no one knows what the what the future is going to hold. And so they begin to study the ancient writings and begin to wonder if if perhaps they have found the rose, who is who is the hope of
1: Asael. It does make you think of those inter- intersections of faith and politics. Mm-hmm. And you know, I do. I know it doesn't happen in our world, but as a reader, <laughs> you definitely see the the disdain of longstanding truths
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: in mm-hmm. in leadership. And I think there's probably examples of that in our lives today.
0: Yeah. And I think hand in hand with that is also the, the desire for power, for power's sake, mm-hmm. as opposed to, okay, I've been given responsibility or power and I am stewarding it for the good of others for the good of a country for the good of a kingdom that dichotomy is you know vividly and in in rose fire that's that's really the the breakdown between the good guys and the bad guys what are you going to do with power if you are given the responsibility and given the power how do you keep yourself from abusing it you know what are what are the paths that because it's so easy it's it's so you know it's It's the old adage, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. If you have power, it is so hard to steward it well.
1: The thing that comes to mind is you need virtue Mm -hmm. and especially humility. Mm -hmm. And that's actually one of the other things I noticed when you were reading Jane Eyre is that where everyone really encounters Christ is in their humility. Yeah, That Rochester encounters Christ in the humility and taking the time to listen and pray. And Sinjin, the humility at the end of his life and recognition of God's authority and things like mm-hmm. that. And mm-hmm. Jane in the humility to recognize her idolatry and admit right.
0: it and right. say,
1: so I need to do something different. If we don't have humility, we can't rule. Right, right. Because we're ruled by the ownership of the power itself. Exactly,
0: exactly. Exactly.
1: Oh, (laughs) obviously I can blab on and on about any book. I I thought it was really interesting that you took kind of biblical principles, Mm -hmm. but in another world, you know, Mm -hmm. in another universe and still let it kind of shape part of that world, even though it's a completely different existence. Mm -hmm. What would you hope that the takeaway that readers get from Rosefire would be?
0: You know, while I have been shaped by literature and moved by literature, and it has been part of my spiritual life as well as part of my emotional growth and development, I don't think literature works well as proselytization. <laughs> That's Is that the right word? Anyway, um, you know, it's not the best format to do that. Telling, But, but I do think it can plant seeds, T- to go back to Lewis, you know, when... The children are leaving him at the leaving Aslan at the end of um, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and Lucy, or I think Aslan says to Lucy, "I'm in your world too." And and Lucy's like, "You are, <laughs> you know." And 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 he says, "Yes, you, you just have to to look for me there. You have to recognize me there." And I think that that would be my hope of you know what Rosefire can do in terms of. That That it will just plant those seeds of longing for something more um and those seeds of of recognition that that there is truth and it is outside of me and my winds of whatever I decide today is is good for me, you know is is what's true that that will plant that seed among people and they'll begin to explore what what truth really is.
1: That's a pretty important question.
0: It is. It, it is. It's really
1: the center of everything. And like I've exactly. talked with some friends about faith and stuff. They're like, well, I'm looking at such and such and I'm looking at such and such. I'm like, seek the truth. Mm-hmm. Seek the truth. And that mm. will take you. And not my truth or what feels right. good, but right. what is real. Right. What is big T true? Big G, good. Big B, beautiful. Yes. What yes. overwhelms you, yeah. and yet, and and how is it that these things can be simultaneously the most simple mm-hmm. and the most complex?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: It, it just blows my mind.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well. That, like
1: we were talking about, you know, the the quiet life and working with our hands and stewarding the gifts that we're given. And that, you know, St. Paul talks about that we aren't all given, you know, the highest gifts of the spirit, the fancy mm-hmm. ones, the ones that stand out, but there's so much beauty in those little things, you know, baking a loaf of bread, brushing my little girl's hair. Mm-hmm. That there is goodness, truth, and beauty with the big letters in that care, in that experience. In all of our little humble experiences. And it's that thing of being present.
0: Right. Right.
1: Which I'm not always present when I'm brushing my kids' hair. I tell you <laughs> that right now. But here's the thing. As I know you and I know Rosefire isn't the only thing that you have done. You have a little thing called?
0: Called Bandersnatch Books. Speaking of good, true, and beautiful. Um, that's That's one of our... One of our taglines is, you know, making books that are good, true, and beautiful, with capital letters. So, yeah, we we being me and uh, Rachel Donahue and Annie Beth Donahue, who are married to brothers, hence they have the same last name. Um, <laughs> but the three of us have launched a small publishing company called Bandersnatch Books. And our goal is to look for the books that are off the beaten path that would otherwise be lost in the world of publishing. The reason that we kind of came to that was all of us have run into trying to get a book published and hearing over and over again, oh, this is really good. I don't know how I'd sell it because it doesn't fit into X, Y, or Z category. And so that's really what we're looking for is books that, for some reason or another, so Rosefire, for example, is, you know, it's too Christian for a general market publisher, but a Christian publisher doesn't like the fact that there's magic in it. So it's stuck in the middle. And, you know, what do you do with that? And some of the best books are there um, that, you know, for some reason or another it's just not going to fit into the right boxes of a major publisher. All three of us have many friends who are writers and we knew quite a few people who were in the same boat as we were. And we said, you know, it we've got the skill set cuz so many of those writers their option is either don't publish or self-publish. Self-publishing is doable and, you know, and it can be done well, but many writers don't have The skill set that you need around writing a book in order to publish it. You know, you have the skill set to write it. But what about marketing? What about making sure the layout looks good? What about running social media? You know, all of all of these things that are (laughs) part of of getting a book out into the world. And so we looked at our skill set and said, oh, we have We have those skills among us. And if we don't have it, we know the people who do. And so we could be a team that could help get a book, a bigger platform. It's not going to be a Penguin Random House bestseller, but it can be a bigger platform than somebody just putting it through Amazon's KDP, you know, so that was kind of where we where we started. And really loving that idea of looking for books that are good, true and beautiful. And um, those books that are kind of classics before they even begin, you know, and that have a bit of a timeless quality to them. And so that's, that's where we're starting. We're starting small and we actually started with our own books because we figured we're learning how to do this. We might as well mess up on our own books first um, yeah. <laughs> before we tell an author to trust us. <laughs> so Rosefire, we did a Kickstarter for it and published it uh, this summer. And then we've published a book of poetry by um, Rachel. It's called Beyond Chittering Cottage, Poems of Place.
1: Sounds very Wendell Berry.
0: It does sound very Wendell Berry. It's, I would say, Rachel's poetry reminds me of Robert Frost in its approachability. Mm. It is just you're you're there. You're in it. You're not um, weighted down by stylistic um, features, even though it is excellent poetry. You know, you're not distracted by the style, and then. You know, you get the gut punch of truth in the midst of that. And that's one of the things I love about it. And she she and her family have had lived overseas for good portions of 12 years and then settled on a piece of land that is adjacent to her husband's family's land. And they, the family has been there for generations. And so mm. she's now learning what it means to be rooted and to have a place. Um, and that's what these poems came out of. And then we have a book that uh, should arrive any day here to my house (laughs) that will then be shipping out. Um, That's a picture book. That's actually a a local artist here that we know, and she had written this picture book called "Why Does Mommy Say No," and illustrated it, painted the paintings herself, and it's it's beautiful. And I'm excited to see that get into the hands of young families. That's definitely like aimed at preschoolers, toddlers. And then we've got coming next year. We've got some middle grade books. We have Annie Beth's Middle Grade Wheelchair Basketball Mystery, um, which I feel like it feels to me like all of my favorite middle grade books when I was a kid. I think there are some really, really great middle grade books being published today, but so many of them are just downers. (laughs) Like, Like, you know, a kid has a major trauma and that's what leads to the story that's being told you know and and they're beautiful and they're good books but annie beth's is just it's fun and it's lighthearted. it doesn't take lightly um the hardships of life but they are just a part of life you know so her main character is is in a wheelchair but it's not that's not her defining characteristic she is also a go-getter and she wants to to figure out how to solve this. And and she's far more concerned about the fact that her mother has taken away her cell phone for the week um, <laughs> than she is about the fact that she is in a wheelchair and can't access something. <laughs> so um, I think that that's a great, you know, just middle grade world. Um, we have some fantasy books come in next year as well. Then we're, we're looking ahead. We're, we're planning for 2023 as well. So we don't have too much that's locked in yet, but, you know, kind of looking In that world, and I would say many of the books that we're publishing are going to be children's through young adult, definitely the young adult are ones that adults will enjoy, you know, so and if there's a book that's aimed for grownups, that is a good fit for what we're looking for, we wouldn't turn that away. Um, But we're just kind of starting where we have the connections, we will reopen submissions in January. Um. yeah, we took a break this fall in order to kind of catch up and get ourselves um, to where we're going.
1: Why do you need a break? Mm-hmm. It's not like reading a book with, you know, a clear mind and thoughtfulness right. takes time and energy.
0: Exactly. Exactly. But yeah, our plan is to reopen in January.
1: That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. seems a pretty typical way to go about it. Yeah. And I got an email saying that you guys are looking to do reprints, new editions of classics. And I was like, oh, because this, it's very exciting because (laughs) I mean, for, for people out there who don't know, and especially for all you homeschool moms who are reading classics Mm -hmm. to your kids, we know what a pain in the rear it is when you order one of these on Amazon and you get it and the typeset is terrible, and it's just these horribly mimeographed pages where you can't even decipher the artwork if it's present, and there's uh, grammar errors galore if they did retype set it, and the margins are all off, and you're like, this hurts my brain to read.
0: Exactly, exactly, and that is our goal, is creating a set of classics that are beautiful, that are something you actually want to pick up and hold in your hands, um, and that introduce people to either reintroduce them to old favorites or introduce them to new favorites. And so, yeah, we're, we're launching the Bandersnatch Classics. Our hope is that we will be able to publish the first one um, next year in 2022 we are, we've launched a patronage program for it because here's the thing. It costs money to publish
1: books. It's so annoying. I know. Um, (laughs) And And just a minute ago, you were telling us it takes time to read a book. Now you're telling us it takes money to publish a book. (laughs) What kind of world is this?
0: What kind of world? Um, And so this patronage program is just an opportunity for people to donate and, um, be part of making this set come to life. Um, and hopefully, you know, hopefully once we get a few of them, it begins to pay for itself um, because we won't have the cost of, you know, paying an author royalties on a public domain book um, and things like that. But to get rolling, we uh, we do need some some help. So if anybody is able to assist, um, that's on our website. It's the classics page on our website. Your your reward is you get to be part of the team. Your name will be in the book as one of our classics patrons. Um, It is not a purchase of the book. And it's also not tax deductible because we are not a 501c3. We are a for-profit company. (laughs) Um, But we just love the idea of being able to invite others in to join us in making these books um, and bringing them to life. I My favorite like example, you were just talking about getting the book off of Amazon and it being such a disappointment. My favorite example was one of my coworkers. We came into a meeting one day and he goes, okay, Carrie, you're gonna know what this is or what's going on here. I need to show you something. I was like, okay, what? He pulls out of his bag a thin volume of poetry from an early 20th century poet was in the public domain. The The cover wasn't bad. You know, it was, a, it was a paperback cover. It wasn't terrible looking or anything like that. But he goes, open this up and tell me what is going on. And I open it and the entire thing is printed in Calibri font, double spaced, with no variation anywhere. So the poems, the table of contents at the beginning is a list of poems double spaced. There are no page numbers associated with them. Um, It's just a list of poem names. And then you get into the poetry and it's like, you know, let's say the first one is titled, you know, a green leaf. It's a green leaf. And then the first line of a green leaf is in the exact same font, just double spaced down. And then you move to, you know, a wide mountain. And uh, (laughs) that's, there's no space between the poems beyond the double spacing. He's like, What what is this? <laughs> and I said, I said, uh, let me look at something. And I pull up my laptop and I pull up Project Gutenberg and I type in the title. And it was there in Project Gutenberg. And you have the list of poems that I in Project Gutenberg are all hyperlinked <laughs> to yep. each poem. And I said, someone came in here and highlighted this entire document, and put it in, in double-spaced font, and published it. And he's like, so you're saying I should have gotten the one that was $10, not the one that was $4? (laughs) I'm like, well, I can't guarantee that would be better, but it might be. (laughs) But that's, that's how easy it is to publish through Amazon's KDP. Like you can do that bad of a job and get a book out into the world that's, that comes up in somebody's algorithm when they're searching for it.
1: But you do the art such a disservice. You do, you do. And so that's And you do the reader a disservice.
0: Absolutely. I mean, can you imagine if you're trying to read poetry and one poem just flows right into the other and you're like, wait, what, what poem am am I reading right now? Like, Um, and so that's our goal with these classics is to create books that are beautiful. We're working with a graphic designer who's going to create a set of custom drop caps for us. Ooh. So those will be in there. He's going to do our covers for us. He's already thinking through a color scheme because our thought is these could live next to each other on a shelf. We aren't doing a series in that, you know, it's not going to be book one, book two, book three. But, you know, we want them to be able to live with each other. And then we're also going to be inviting friends who love these books. Um so the first book that we're aiming to do is Understood Betsy, which is an American classic. Um it is such a great book for um kind of middle grade. Elizabeth Ann is raised in the city by her two spinster aunts. Um I guess one of them wouldn't be a spinster, she would be a widow. But anyway, because it's a like mother-daughter pair. And um one of them gets ill and they have to go away to the sea to get better, and they can't take Elizabeth Ann with them. And so they are horrified, but they have to send her to live with the Putney cousins in Vermont. And so it's this petted little girl winds up on a farm in Vermont with these salt of the earth people. She begins to to come into who she really is over the course of the story um, and just blossoms into a, a strong, vibrant child, and it's just such a good book. And uh, Randall Goodgame of Slugs and Bugs is going to write us an introduction to that one. He and his son read it and loved it, and he's like, "Yeah, I'll tell people about how much I love this book." And so we're just excited to have that kind of be a pattern, and you know, hopefully one a year, maybe more than that, and we'll see see how many we can get out.
1: Are you hoping to do these hardcover?
0: yes yes we're not sure whether we are going to be able to do like a cloth bound or anything like that but you can do there's some really gorgeous printed hardcovers coming out right now
1: the wing feather ones are gorgeous yeah
0: yeah as an example the wing feather ones and so that's probably the direction we're going to be headed in terms of um design is that sort of printed hardcover that you know maybe has some foil stamping or some debossing on it um trying to find that sweet spot of affordability um, and beauty.
1: (laughs) Marbled paper, traditional marbled paper is so stinking literary. And that's what made me want to do it is because it just makes me think of old books.
0: Right, right. That is, that's a good idea. I will, we need to, need to talk to our printer about what our options are.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I know that, I know that putting color inside a book would be,
0: Right, some chiching,
1: yes. yes, but yeah. but I mean, you think about it, or when the um when the outside of the papers are paper marbled, oh, so mm-hmm. gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I have a penchant All for right. marbled paper, and especially right. for uh, historical literature.
0: Yes, yes, yeah. So, so we're really excited about the Bandersnatch classics, and
1: can you tell? I am too.
0: I can, and I'm glad. <laughs> Please continue to spread the word.
1: <laughs> yeah, well. I think we need to spread the word on getting to our rando round because yes. our time together is flying by and oh I need goodness. my overcaffeinated questions answered.
0: <laughs> I am here
1: to answer over caffeinated questions. All right. Let's see. So you get to pick your dice. There's pink with aqua sparkles. Or there is tie-dye. Ooh, let's go tie-dye. <sighs> Tie dye. Can you go wrong with tie-dye? I, mean, I don't really? think
0: you can. I don't think so.
1: The nice thing about tie-dye is it hides stains. It does. What can I say? True. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see what we can get out of you on these questions here. We got 37. What is your favorite word?
0: Oh, hobbledehoy. Hobbledehoy.
1: Definition, please. I would like it from the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh,
0: yes, I actually could look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, but I'll give you the carry definition, which is a mix. But it's a gawky, awkward youth. And my absolute favorite use of it is in Elizabeth Gaskell's book, um, Wives and Daughters, and she refers, she describes her heroine, who's about sixteen, maybe fifteen, sixteen, as in a feminine state of hobbledehoyhood
1: that line
0: it's glorious
1: it's epic
0: it's so amazing
1: yes (laughs) yes see people look what you can learn listening to a podcast (laughs) that is awesome let's see what else we got here 65 how do you de-stress
0: I tend to be like all in or completely unplugged. Um, And so my de-stressing is sometimes just total vegging. I also regularly get massage because I otherwise wind up with tension headaches. So that is a, a, a gift that I have decided this is worth doing. So I don't wind up in pain and incapacitated. So flat on my back, either reading a book or watching something. Um or getting a massage.
1: <laughs> Very fine. Well, and and it's neat because one of those is cerebral and one of those is tactile.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And that was actually part of my, like, realization that I should do massage regularly was, you know, I'm, I'm single, I live alone, and I don't get a lot of human touch. And, you know, I was like, there's a book by Lori Wilbert called Handle with Care um, about Jesus' ministry of touch. And she actually talked about How massage was a part of her learning about touch and good touch in, you know, in our current day. Um, And I just thought that was fascinating. And that was part of part of my trigger.
1: Well, and especially right now with like social distancing and Mm -hmm. masks. I mean, I don't know if you guys have masks where you're living or what have you. But there's so much disconnect that Mm -hmm. to be able to reconnect with other human beings. But tactile also makes you reconnect to self.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly.
1: Oh, yeah. that's really cool. All right, let's see what else we got. I just like rolling dice.
0: Hey, it's a good plan.
1: Ooh, number 99. It's an that's excellent exciting. number.
0: It's the year I graduated from high school.
1: I I thought you were a lot younger than that.
0: <laughs> I am not. <laughs> I like to... I gra- you know, Confuse people that way,
1: because <laughs> I graduated in ninety seven so oh, there we go, <laughs> yeah, so we 're in the same age cohort, woo um what 's your favorite podcast?
0: This is hard i okay, so I love like rewatch podcasts that that is a genre that I really enjoy whether they 're rewatching through a television show or um anything you know movies or or things like that i I just enjoy that and talking through it. Probably the best of those is uh, one that's now done, but it's the West Wing Weekly. Um, and they watched through the entire West Wing. And it was one of the guys who was an actor on the show, as well as a guy named Rishi who who is a podcaster and musician. So that's like still holds a high spot in my heart, even though I don't listen to it regularly anymore because I list through the whole thing. But Rishi, the podcaster, um, this past year did another podcast called Home Cooking with Samin Nasrat, who is she's the woman that wrote Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Um, She's a chef. She also did a Netflix show for it. She's amazing. And I love her. And so they they started a it was going to be a four part podcast during the beginning of lockdown because everybody was stuck home cooking. And so it was like answering questions about cooking and it wound up they did like 14 episodes in 2020, and then in 2021, they've just dropped them every once in a while, but it is just so delightful. Um, and they just did, they just came out with one for a thanks, pre Thanksgiving, and I was so excited. Like, every once in a while, there'll be a gift. And Rishi will introduce it by saying, This is part 16 of our four part podcast on. <laughs> <laughs> so, those would be two of my high
1: ones. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I. I love cooking, and I haven't read that particular work, but mm-hmm. just like over the years, I consumed so much media about the chemistry behind cooking, yes. and like these little tips change everything. What is a fond? What is deglazing? Right. What do you deglaze with? If you know those three things, right, you can do a lot.
0: <laughs> you can. You can absolutely.
1: So, so that's that's really cool. Well. I have really enjoyed our time.
0: I have as well.
1: However, I think it's time for the last question. All right. And my last question for all of my guests is what gives you hope right now? Hmm.
0: The Messiah has come and will come again. We enter Advent this weekend, but we are recording right before Advent. And um, it is the season of darkness with points of light and I I work at a church and I just developed our Advent guide for our congregation to use as a devotional as they go through. And what we focused on in in that devotional this year was was the both and of it. You know that that this is we know the the reality. We know the truth that the Messiah came, that Jesus came, and He fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. And yet, there is still more to be redeemed. And that, that was where, you know, we sit in this, in this in-between time. And so I think, you know, I'm looking out my window right now and it's a beautiful sunny day, but it's going to get dark in about four and a half hours, if that. And, um, it's, it's a long dark night and yet, um, and I think right now in this season, you know, we feel that metaphorically as well. Um, and yet there is hope. And there are points of light in the darkness. Mm
1: -hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I've really enjoyed it.
0: I have as well. Thank you so much for having me, Jane.
1: I had such a great time with Carrie on the show. It was like she ripped open a literary goodie bag for us to all feast on. If you would like to learn more about her work, you can find it at carolyncgivens.com or bandersnatchbooks.com. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, read stories that matter because you are living one.